Good morning. If you would please take your Bible and look to the book of Nehemiah. We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2. And it is good to see each of you this morning. This last uh, week or two, I have been watching some of the Olympics. I'm not really, I really don't follow them as much as I did as a young man. In fact, I did not know they were going on until one of my sons told me they were going on. So that tells you something about how much I follow them. But uh, I have seen certain um, parts of it um, over the last couple of weeks. And one of the things I noticed that announcers would often say, especially I saw this in um, some of the um, swimming um, races that went on, that uh, it's important that the swimmer, and they were talking about uh, a U.S. swimmer um, in several races, they said it's important that this swimmer gets off to a good start. And in talking about racing, it seems like Quite often, you hear announcers saying how important it is to get off to a good start. Well, when we look at Nehemiah, we understand that getting off to a good start is not just about swimming or running or something like that in some athletic competition, but it is important to get off to a good start in doing the Lord's work. And Nehemiah certainly understood that, and what we see this morning in chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, we see that Nehemiah has arrived to Jerusalem, and he's very concerned about getting off to a good start as he prepares to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. But more so than that, we will find that it's more than just about walls, but it's really rebuilding the people of God to be what God called them to be. And so Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20, recount Nehemiah's first days as he arrived in Jerusalem. And it reiterates to us what his actions were as he began this project. And so we see uh, there are really three parts to this uh, passage. The first is... Nehemiah's first steps as he goes out and privately inspects the walls, really the ruins is a better way of saying it, and really just getting a handle on what the job is going to require and what he needs to do. And uh, then the second part is it talks about how he got the people together and how he enlisted them to join him in doing the work that God had called him to do. And the last part, just the last two verses in this chapter, just as we have seen already, we see another mention of the enemies of the people of God. And we see their dissent, we see their opposition, and this will become very much an ongoing theme throughout this book. So as we look at this, what was involved, first of all, in the preparation of this, uh, what, what was required? And that's the first word I'd like us to think of. What was required um, to do this work? And so let's read, beginning with verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, and I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone my, what my God was putting into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. 
So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and on the refuse, onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So as Nehemiah began this work, how does he begin? Well, we see in verse 11, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. In other words, the first thing that he did was rest or relax. And there's several words I'd like us to, to think of, of what he did. And the first one is relaxation. Now, you may think that is really a, an odd thing to think about, that a person should relax before getting to work. But that's exactly what he did. And it's interesting that when Ezra made this 850-mile or so trek, probably more like 1,000 miles if you count the uh, the roads uh, by the bird flying is more like 850 miles, but more like 1,000 um, by traveling on foot. And yet, he makes this long trek, and he has enough sense to know that I've got a big job ahead of me, and so I'm going to relax. I'm going to rest and get myself ready physically to do the work that God has called me to do. And rest in the, the scriptures is, is very important. This goes all the way back, you realize this, to the creation when the Lord worked six days in creation and rested the seventh. And then we see that Moses in the law says to the people that God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, and so we will work six days and we will rest on the seventh, the Sabbath. And it is interesting to note, I think in a lot of circles in the church today, we often think of the Sabbath in the Old Testament as being about worship. And while there, there is something to that, that really was not the emphasis in the Old Testament. The emphasis of the Sabbath in the Old Testament is rest. It's about rest, and it's about understanding that work needs to be done six days, rest on a seventh. And it is giving a principle of understanding that there is a time to work and there is a time to rest. And God has ordained both of these. And as we think about this, there is a theological aspect to rest because it does point to God as the creator. And it is a memorial to what God did when he created in six days and rested on the seventh. But also, it has to do with God's deliverance of his people in Deuteronomy and in Exodus. It also speaks of how the, the Sabbath was meant to be a witness to others of God's salvation. And it was a memorial that God has saved us and we have rest in him. We are no longer a people in bondage in Egypt, but we are a people who can rest now in covenant relationship with our God. So it's more than talking about just a memorial of God creating in six days and resting on the seventh, but it is truly a picture of the rest that every believer has 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ as our Sabbath. He is our rest. And so there is very much a theological aspect to this idea of rest. But this is something I, I, I find many of us do, and we just shouldn't do it. And that is we think about these things theologically, and we think that something that's theological has no practical aspect to it. And it's almost as if it's unspiritual to be practical. If we learn anything from Nehemiah, we will learn that being spiritual also involves being practical. And what we see here is he gets there and he rests for three days because he has a big job ahead of him. And this may sound odd to us. I think about our society today. And this is not just outside the church. This is in the church. This is, this is just who we are, I think, here in America. It's almost a badge of honor for us to brag about how busy we are and how much work we have going on. It's very strange to me, actually. I remember, I'm old enough to remember this, when cell phones first came out. And I was actually debating whether I wanted to get a cell phone or not. And I'll tell you the reason why I did not want to get a cell phone, because I did not want to be on call all the time to somebody. The only reason I gave in, I thought, there is one practical thing that overrides everything else. And that is, if there's some accident, some emergency, it would be nice to have a phone handy to call somebody. But it's an amazing thing, as I look back when I got my first cell phone, to my thinking then, to what it is now. The only thing is, I have dealt with that in my own life. Everything's silenced whatsoever on my phone. So anyone texts me, anyone calls me, the only one that has a sound is my wife. And she's had a sound for me for many years, actually. Um, so, uh, yes, she has a ringer, and she, she calls me um, when she knows that either she needs me or, or she, she can call me. And so that's, that's the deal. But it is an amazing thing how we are always going and going and going and not recognizing the, the concept of rest and work and work and rest. And you can read studies. I'm one of those guys that likes to read studies. And I research things. And I read a study about work efficiency. Do you realize that a proper amount of rest gives better efficiency at work? Now, too much rest, not, not a good thing. But too little rest, not a good thing either. And so he has a good mind Nehemiah does. He's been on an 850-mile to 1,000-mile trip, whatever it was, and he comes, and the first thing he does is he takes three days to, to get things together with himself physically. And then what he does is he moves to the next, next aspect of this, and he moves from relaxation to examination. And it's a private examination of what goes on. We read this here in verse 12. I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And so what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing the right thing, 
doing the right thing, doing the right thing at the right time, in the right way, to the right extent. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does here. If you want a picture of someone in the scriptures who was wise, Nehemiah is a prime example of that. Because what he does, he privately goes about the work of examination. He wants to see what needs to be done. He takes the time to prepare. He takes the time to plan. He looks everything over. And why do I say he's wise in this? Well, Proverbs 18.15 states, The mind of the prudent acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 14.27 Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. Afterwards, then build your house. And so there are some practical things that need to be done, and it begins with planning. It begins with examination to know just exactly what needs to get done. Now, it's interesting. He's the only one that has a mount. It was probably um, a mule or a donkey um, just because of the treacherous terrain that he was going through. And um, he's the only one. We don't know why that is. It doesn't make a case for why that's important. But I'm guessing it, he could be above the, those with him so he could see above them to see everything that he was looking at. But he goes and he does this at night because he's not wanting to draw attention to himself. And he hasn't even told the people with him why they are going out and doing what they're doing. Because he recognizes that there are enemies. He recognizes that there are those that are going to rise up and have already risen up against the people of God. And he doesn't need any of the stuff that will come with this, if I can use that word, just all the junk that comes from the enemy that will come. He doesn't need any of that as he is looking over the situation and getting his bearings and making plans. And he recognizes that even those among his people were moles. They were ones that were working with the enemy, and we, this will come out, and some of these will be given names as we move on through this study. And so he has a mind to what he's doing. He recognizes that he needs to think through it himself, and, and he needs to understand this himself before he brings it up before other people. And it, it's amazing here that he says, I told no one what God had put upon my heart. And to lead the people of God to honor God by removing the reproach and by doing the work that would bring honor to God in the city of Jerusalem this is what God had laid upon his heart. This is what God did in his life. And this is the word that's used, literally. This is what God has put on my heart. And so he is seeking to do this in a way that is right, in a way that will be well done. And as, as we think about this, I think about his willingness to do this. He was a cupbearer. Let that sink in. He was a taste tester for the king. That was his job. 
He was not royalty. He was not a part of the Davidic line like Zerubbabel had been, who, who had led the first group to come to Jerusalem. He was not a priest. He was not a prophet. His background was serving the Persian king by making sure the Persian king didn't get poisoned. Now, it was an important job. And he had an elevated position because it meant that the king had an immense amount of trust in him. But my point is, if you look at the credentials of leadership in the Old Testament, he doesn't fit those typically. But what he does fit is what is most important. And that is his willingness to serve God, his willingness to bring the people of God together and his desire more than anything else for the glory of God and for the removal of the reproach that had come upon the people of God and upon God's name himself as a result of what had happened. And this is what his heart was. And he was willing to do what he could do if God would use him to glorify God, to bring honor to his name once again before the nations, and to help the people of God be the people of God that God had called them to be. See, some of us this morning, I would say the vast majority of us this morning, do not have a sense of calling to full-time vocational Christian ministry. You don't sense that God has called you to be a pastor. You don't sense that God has called you to be a missionary, either full-time here um, in the States or, or overseas. There are some here, yes, but not the majority. And what we have in our minds, which is wrongly in our minds, among many believers today, is that the ministers of the church are those that have gone to seminary or have gone to Bible college, and they're the ones that are on staff, they're the ones that are paid to do the work of the ministry. And that is a lie from hell. That is not Old Testament under, an Old Testament understanding of the people of God, and it is surely more explicit in the New Testament that that is not who we are as the people of God. Every one of us, when we were called to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we were called to serve him through his church, to the glory of God in his church. And all of us are called to be ministers. I'll tell you this. When you see a young believer, they understand that. When a, and I don't mean how young they are. But let me say a new believer, young in Christ. But when you see a new believer, they understand it. Why? Because they understand that they are, have given their lives to Christ completely, that they have been bought with a price, and that they belong to him, and he is Lord. And so whatever he says, whatever he commands, that is what I'm willing to do. You know what? It is shameful for many of us. I came to Christ when I was eight years old. And it is shameful for me, it's shameful for many of us when we recognize that maybe when I was an eight-year-old, 
I had more of a willingness to do whatever God has called me to do than I do today. Over the years, we can develop strings that, yeah, I'll do this if this happens or if this is meant for me or if I can have this, and that is not a part of our calling. We have been called to be servants, and Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king in Persia, and yet God had laid upon his heart a burden for the people of God, a burden for the reputation of God for the nations, and he prayed to God, God, do something about this and use me in whatever way you will to see this come to happen. And now, from his first hearing about this, he has traveled nearly a thousand miles to a place that's desolate, to a place where he will not be well received by a great many people willing to do what God has called him to do for the glory of God and for the help of the people of God. And so that's where he is. And he is doing it in a right way. He's thoughtful about it. He's examining what needs to be done. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about T.J. Betts. Spent a lot of time examining my own plans and what I want to do. Every time in the morning I get up, I'm thinking about what is it that's on my agenda today? What do I need to get done? And what we need to recognize is that as children of God, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only agenda that really matters in our lives is our Lord's agenda for us. And it is what he has called us to do. And it is to seek to glorify him in whatever way we possibly can and to be desirous of that and to be willing to do whatever God has called us to do to see that happen. That's what he did. And he, he plans it. Again, it's practical. I plan out my life. I plan out my days. I plan out even vacations. Drives my wife crazy. Um, we kind of switched over the years when we first married. If we went someplace, I had, I had a schedule. I was like, let's, we get up at 6 in the morning. There, I lost some of you right there. My wife was like, what in the world? 6 in the Absolutely. I may never come here ever again. We're going to see everything we can see. And she's like, what? You know, I mean... Her uh, vacation um, is to get up about 10, um, eat, of course, and then if she could, go to the beach or go to some water somewhere and lay there until you start to, and read until you get sleepy and then maybe take a nap and if you get hot, go dip in the water and then it's time to eat again. And then you eat, and then you might need to take an afternoon nap, and then, you know, there might be something to see in the evening, and of course, that involves eating again. And, then, and by the way, we were in a marriage uh, conference, and we were just new, newly married. We've been married about five or six years, but uh, they split up the men and women, and they wanted to know how well you knew your wife. And uh, they asked me questions, and one of the questions was, what does your wife, what, what are your favorite things your wife likes to do? And I said, eat and sleep. And they were appalled by that. They're like, you are a terrible person. How could you say that? She comes in, 
And so they asked her, what do you like to do? She, she said, well, I really like to go out to eat, and um, I like to just kind of take things easy. I'm like, there you go. <laughs> I know her. I know what she likes, and, and that's good. And she likes me. You see, there, I like that too. Um, so so that, that's a part of it. But you see, planning, we plan our lives out. What, how much planning are you doing for your service of the Lord? How much time do you think about that? How much time do you pray about that? How much do you give to saying, you know what? This is what needs to be done. And God, I'm praying that you will do this, and I'm availing myself to you to do this. Use me, and let me look at some ways that, that I could serve you in this way. You see, not everyone can do everything. Not everyone's called to do everything, but everyone in the body of Christ is called to do something. And we're going to see this as we move on in this book as well. But he begins this. He gives attention to honoring God in his life. It's not some theoretical idea that sounds all sugary and nice and spiritual, but he put legs to his commitment to say, what can I do and how can I plan this out so that God would be honored in this? And so the next thing is preparation for rebuilding required enlistment. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jesus, is, or, or, I'm sorry, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. What's he do here? I love Nehemiah. You, you may be able to tell I love Nehemiah. I didn't have to, I, I don't know if you know, I wrote a book on Nehemiah. I didn't have to. I wanted to um, because I just love Nehemiah. And one of the things I love about him is right here, he is a straight shooter. He makes an honest evaluation of the situation. He doesn't tell them, you know, there are a few things I've noticed that we could improve on a little bit. Maybe we should give some thought to this. No, he looks and he sees these burnt down walls. He sees the rubble. He sees places he can't even go because it's been destroyed and there's debris everywhere. And what does he say to them? You see the bad situation we're in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. That's what he says. He gives an honest assessment of the situation. And the thing is, this is something everyone knows, I think. And that is not only with uh, Christians, but unbelievers as well, that we will never correct something until we make an honest assessment of the need for the correction. And we can go along and act like everything's okay, and it's not. And there are a lot of people that do that. We all may, in one area of our lives or some area, be like that. I heard as a kid, we should honor God and do, do things as well for God as we would do for ourselves. That doesn't wash with me. You know why? I'm okay with a little mediocrity in my life. I mean, just to be honest with you, you can look at me and say, oh, you got that right. You can tell that. But yeah, I'm, I, I can live with that. Uh, but no, he deserves better than T.J. Betts. 
And so it is seeking to honor him and recognizing that there are some things that aren't right that need to be made right, and let's, let's be honest about it, and let's look at what needs to be done to do it, and then let's do it. And he just, he's very frank with them, open with them about the situation. This is not a good situation. In fact, it's a terrible situation. It's a bad situation. Something needs to be done. And I've been places overseas, a number of places overseas, and I've been places where it's, and this may be in the United States as well, um, in fact, I'm sure it is as I come to think about it, but I'm thinking of one place in particular I won't mention, but it just made uh, an extreme impact on my memory, and that is in this community where I was, there was just garbage everywhere, in, in their yards, just everywhere. I mean, on the streets, on the side of the streets, everywhere, and I, I'd never seen anything like this, and by the way, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, so I've seen some stuff, okay? but I'd never seen anything like this. And it, it dawned on me that they were just going about their day as if there was nothing going on with that. And I realized they were just used to it. It didn't bother them because they were used to it. And you know, that's human nature. We let things go long enough that we shouldn't let go we just don't even think about it anymore. We just get used to, as they did, the garbage, as the people in Jerusalem, the debris, all the junk around them. Just get used to it over time. And sometimes we need someone to come along and say, this is not going to work. This is not right. There needs to be some changes done here. And our Lord is so wonderful with us that he has given us as believers his Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who convicts us of sin and convicts us of righteousness and what we should be and what we shouldn't be. But I will tell you this, like anything else, over time we can even give a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit by no longer listening to him. But they had gotten used to the debris. I mean, it had been there well over 100 years. And so they were used to it, and he comes in and says, no, this, this isn't going to fly. This, isn't gonna, this is wrong. And it's interesting how he exhorts them we see that he, he gives an evaluation and now exhortation. What's his exhortation? This exhortation is um, for them to get to work. He says here, um, let us, in the last part of verse 17, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. It's interesting um, how he goes about this. Um, and that is... He gives them the proper motivation to do this. Now, I read an article years ago about work and motivation for work. And psychologists basically, in general, say there are three things that will motivate people to work. 
One is security. In other words, do this for your own security. I mean, a lot of people, I have a friend, he'd always say this, um, my dad lives to work, I work to live. And um, he did not have the work ethic his dad did, that was for sure. He's my best friend, wonderful guy, but he just had different um, values, we'll say, than what his father did. But for him, my friend, work was really a necessary thing he had to do just so he could do the things he wants to do. And so it was for security, so he could pay his mortgage, and so he could go to, he loved to fish, so go to the lake and fish and do the things he wanted to do. And so to pay his bills and to get done, what this is what it was, so security. It's not a bad thing, and that, that was an issue with Jerusalem. Their walls were down. They were vulnerable, and they were in desperate need for these walls to be rebuilt so that they would have some security. And security also will be an ongoing theme in this book. But what's amazing here, Nehemiah doesn't bring up the need for security when he tells them to arise and build, even though they did. That's not what he talks about. That's not what he emphasizes. A second thing psychologists have said that gets people um, to work is to motivate them with a challenge, to say, this is something that would be good for you, and this is a good challenge, and and this would just be positive for you to do. Well, it, it, it was a big challenge, and it was a good thing for them to do. It needed to be done. It, it would be something that they could take a great deal of pride in once it was done. That has nothing to do, though, with the reason that Nehemiah gives them to build. But the third one that psychologists have said that motivates people to work is the idea of identity. Identity. And this is what Nehemiah speaks to here. Because the reason he gives, if you look at the last part of verse 17, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, what? So that we will no longer be a reproach. We are the people of God. We represent God before the nations. This is the city where God has made his name known. And we have become a laughingstock to the nations. We have become a reproach to the nations as the people of God. And as people look at us, they mock us because they see our God as weak. They see our God is powerless to take care of his people and to be the God that can provide for his people and protect his people, and we are a reproach before the nations. We are the people of God. He deserves honor and glory through his people. Let us arise and build. That was it. It's who we are. We are the people of God. And as the people of God, we are to be a reflection of who our God is. And so we pray that God will bless us as we do this work, not for our own glory, but for his glory. That there would be no reproach among his people or on his people, which brings reproach on him. It's interesting. I think I mentioned this to you a couple weeks ago. My father passed away um, 14 years ago in July. 
Um, I think I may have mentioned this to you as well, but as I got older, it came to the point I realized that um, a lot of things I do, I want to bring honor to him. Even though he's long gone, I don't, I, I don't know what he's doing in heaven, um, but, but I know that he's had a great impact on me to love the Lord and want to serve him, and I want to honor my dad in that as well. And when you truly love someone, you want to honor them. I think about this with my wife. I want to honor my wife. I, you hear me joke and go on. If you take me seriously, then, then you're in trouble when I talk about these things. And my family knows it's when I don't joke about these things that there's something wrong with me. That in our home, we express our love by having fun with each other. But I want to honor her. Why? Because I love her. One of the things I remember about my father, when he would introduce me, he, he, he was very active in the Southern Baptist Convention at every level. He was very active in the conservative resurgence, if you're familiar with that. And I loved to just travel with him as he would go to meetings. And I remember going to meetings with him when I was a, a teenage boy, about 13, 14, 15 years old. And he'd be meeting with guys in our convention at that time, which were just heroes to me. I wouldn't be at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary if it were not for some of these people that he was rubbing his shoulders with. And it wasn't that they got me the job. I'm talking about the theological change that took place that they led in our denomination. But I remember many occasions he'd be talking to them, and they'd be going on, and all of a sudden he'd look, and he'd, his eyes, he'd catch my eyes, and he'd say, come here. And I would come. And he would take his arm, put it around me, and pull me in. And he'd say, I want you all to meet my son. Just like 13 years old. And yet, I thought, man, my dad loves me. He, he's, he's introducing me to these people. I matter to him. And it's that idea we honor people we love. How much more then? Do we want to honor our Heavenly Father? Think about what he has done for us. He has taken us who were enemies, who were outsiders, and he has brought us in to his family, and he has adopted us and made us children of the king royalty, those who were impoverished and outsiders. And we want to honor him. That was Nehemiah. That is what he had in mind. That was the reason to do what they were doing. And then there's a divine verification that comes with this. It's interesting. When he says, let's arise and build, he tells them why they should. In verse 18, besides removing the reproach, he says, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. There it is. God has been at work in my life. God has done these things in my life. And I'm here by the hand of God. That's it. He didn't give any, any credit to himself, any, of his, any, any kind of things that he might have done to make things happen. No, 
He says, God has been on my life. His hand has been on me, and I've seen him at work in my life. And that's why I know we need to do this. And so he gives credit to God. He doesn't give credit to himself. And it's just like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 102, 27 and 28, speaking to the Lord, you are the same and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. This is the kind of faith of someone who has had many years of faithfulness on God's part in their lives to know that he can trust God because God has shown himself to be faithful and his hand has been upon me. And he knows that and he recognizes God's hand upon his life. It's interesting also, as we look at him, notice in verse 18, he says, the hand of my God. This is something that Nehemiah phrased that he uses quite a bit, my God. My God's hand is upon me. And he, he was Nehemiah's God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is your God. He is our God. And it is personal. And here it is, he says, he's my God. And I can trust him because my God, his hand is upon me. I have seen what he has done and I can trust him and you can too. That was his message. But then he gives them the necessary authorization. In verse 18, he says, not only has the hand of my God been favorable to me, also he told them about the king's words which he had spoken to him. The very king who had put a stop to the work in Jerusalem, that king gave Nehemiah not only authorization to do the work that needed to be done, but he provided with him with all the materials he needed to, to have to do the work that needed to be done. And here we see again God's hand at work. And it is God who is doing these things. It is amazing when the people of God truly seek to glorify God and build up his church. It's an amazing thing to see how God works and we look at it and say, I can't take credit for that. Only God could do what has happened in my life. Only God could do what he has happened in our church. And we recognize that God is at work among his people. And so this is what he saw, and this is what he recognized. And the king had also, under God's work in his heart, I believe, made him respond to Nehemiah the way he did. And so the people heard. And what do we see in verse 18? Then they said, the last part, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. This should be the response of all of God's people every day. We should respond and say, let us arise and do the work that God has called us to do and then get to it. Do the work then. Say, yes, Lord, I will do it, and then get after it. That is what it means to be the people of God. They responded to God by saying, yes, this is what we need to do. We will do the work that God has called us to do, and then they got to it. What would happen 
among believers today, if even just half of us did what these people did, if just half of us said, Lord, whatever work you have for us in the church, we will do it, and then we get after it and do the work. What difference would it make? They say that 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. And then we wonder, why isn't the church thriving like, like it could? And why isn't this happening? And why isn't that happening? And we want to look everywhere around. And the question is, what are we doing here as the people of God ourselves? Are we truly saying, let us arise and build and then getting up and doing just that? Wherever we can in the work that God is doing in the church. That's the real church. That's what makes a church. It is a community of faith that is given over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and says, whatever you say to do, Lord, we will do it. Let us do it. And they do it. It's not hard. It's not hard to understand, at least. But it must be something hard about it because we certainly don't see it in the average church today. And yet, the hardness may be just a hardness of heart. So, this is what it required. What did this preparation for rebuilding reveal? Let me mention a couple things quickly. We see here, it revealed the enemy's resistance. We see this in verse 19. Tobiah the Ammonite joined Samballot. We'd already had been introduced to him and Geshem, the Arab. Um, it's Geshem who's the new character here. And what do they do? It says, they mocked us, they despised us, and said, what is this thing you're doing? You're rebelling against the king. And this is what the enemy does. They mock, saying, do you really, who, who do you think you are? You think you can do that? Nah. It's ridiculous. And they mock the people of God. And then they move on and they despise the people of God, saying, you have no worth. What you do doesn't matter. It, it means nothing. And then they move from that to saying, well, who, what do you think you're doing here? And the idea here is you are breaking the law because the king has already said you can't do this and you shouldn't be doing this. And now you're in big trouble because of what you're doing. And we're going to make sure you pay for what you're doing. So intimidation is brought into it, and they misrepresent the, the motives of the people. Are you rebelling against the king? Misrepresentation. Let me tell you, it just goes with serving the Lord. And there needs to be some toughness among the people of God. Why are we so wimpy? Why are we so sensitive? Why don't we just stand up and say, I'm going to do what God has called me to do, and you can get on board, or you can get off to the side, and please get off to the side if you're not going to get on, but we're going to do the work that God has called us to do regardless, and just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do unto God, and have some backbone among us, as opposed to just, oh, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't, oh, they're upset with me. Oh, I need to. 
the only way you're not going to make people upset is not to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And then the one who is offended is God himself because of our disobedience. No, it's going to come with the territory. But you do the work that God's called you to do. It doesn't mean you don't care about people, but it means you're not going to let them intimidate you or keep you from doing the work that God has called you to do. Because if Satan could stop you from being faithful to God, he will. And the question is, will he succeed at that? Will his, his people under his power succeed in that? And this is what they do, and it's a part of it. And what's, I love Nehemiah's answer. This needs to be our answer. So I answered them and said, the God of heaven will give us success. There it is. It's interesting. He doesn't say, that, oh, the king gave us authority. Because they said, are you rebelling against the king? Oh, no, 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 we got the paperwork here. We can prove, it. no, no. He, he, he doesn't say that. Or we've got all this stuff the king gave us. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? God is going to give me success. He's going to give us all success as we do the work that God has called us to do. That's it. His trust was in the Lord. And he said, he's going to give us success. And by the way, he goes on to say, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. Those of you who are enemies of the kingdom of God, he says, you have no part in the Lord's work. But we, as the people of God, we're going to do it, and our God is going to give us success. There needs to be among the people of God a spiritual stubbornness that we will do what God has called us to do regardless and let nothing hold the people of God back. Not even brothers and sisters who will not join alongside of us. And we will see that in Nehemiah as well. Being faithful to that work. Well, let me close. Let me close with a few questions. What does the way you begin a, a work or project to serve the Lord say about how significant that service is to you? How you plan, how you go about the Lord's work, what does that say about your service? How regularly do you examine the needs done around you in the name of Christ? Another question, what evidence in your life demonstrates your commitment to joining together with other believers to do his work? What has God put into your heart to do? Yeah, there is a certain calling that God puts in our hearts to do. There's one, certain things that all of us are called to do, but there are certain things in particular that God is calling us to do. What has he put on your heart to do for his kingdom? And then the question is, are you doing it? Are you doing it? That's the real question. And then finally, what evidence is there in your life that displays a dogged determination to accomplish what God has put into your heart to do? The Lord never said it would be easy. But I will tell you this, I go to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whenever I'm tempted, say, I'm done. I don't want any more of this. 
I could do something much easier, much, much less trouble. Whenever I'm tempted to think those things, I look to Jesus Christ and realize that he went to the cross for the joy that was before him. And that joy was the salvation of you and me if we are believers. And I am. I hope you are. And who am I as the servant to give less than what the master has already given? And so there needs to be a dogged determination, a spiritual stubbornness, because our Lord went all the way to the cross and beyond, to the grave, and rose again, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and not only makes mediation for us, but he's an advocate for us. How can I not then live for the one who died and now lives for me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the kindness that you have shown us, that, that you've called us to serve you. You've given us the privilege in your kingdom to be about your work. You have called us by name, and we bear your name upon our lives in Christ. May our lives give evidence of this salvation and may our lives give evidence of this life commitment that we have made to honor you. And Father, I pray that in our lives personally and in the lives of this church corporately that you would be magnified as your people are committed to your work, to the glory of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name we pray, amen.